This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is March 8th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We got a jam-packed show tonight. Spring ball inching ever so closer, if not already upon us at pretty much every outpost in the SEC, ACC, beyond. But we're going to talk actually some Big Ten tonight because I got a little complaint from one of my relatives, Colin, the other night that we were a little bit too SEC heavy. How dare us? So uh, before I get there, just a little housekeeping note because we got flooded with positive messages the other night. So first and foremost, thank you for that. But also, yeah, we're going to have it in podcast form. You didn't think I was going to make the show and not put it to me in podcast form, did you? So yes, the Late Kick podcast, to my knowledge, is already available. I wanted to wait the weekend just to make sure we didn't do false advertising around here, but search the Late Kick and it is available wherever you download your podcast. And if not already, will be this week. We've got a lot of really talented people here working on a whole lot of things. We're trying to get off the ground simultaneously. Tonight on this program, we're going with a fairly deep dive on Georgia. There are a couple of camps out there, a couple of schools of thought with Georgia about how this new offensive philosophy, quarterback, coordinator, both of whom are new, come in. What's it going to mean for Georgia's offense this year? A lot of one-possession games last year that you Bulldog fans didn't think should be one-possession games. I'm going to hit that, kind of evolving my thinking there as the offense evolves. Uh, I'm also going to talk about a mood tracker for Tennessee tonight. We always, at least on our show, we always, when we get into spring ball, we do a mood tracker for fan bases. Then when we go into fall camp, we do mood trackers for fan bases. So we're going to do that tonight. And also this very pronounced gap that exists in the ACC between Clemson and the rest of the field. For a while, it looked like it was happening in the SEC, but you're never going to have that happen for too long between Alabama and everyone else. So the pack caught up to Alabama. Well, is it happening in the Big Ten? Short answer, yes. How did it happen between Ohio State and the pack? And then how long could it last? We'll talk about that tonight. So let's dive into this. And I wanted to start in Athens, GA. We were originally going to touch on this the other night, but I wanted to hold off. I had someone I wanted to talk to. Not that there's any breaking news that's going to be involved in this particular segment, but I did want to start with Georgia tonight. Kirby Smart at Georgia. Really interesting dynamic here. On one sense, they seem to ever be on the precipice of winning the SEC National Championship. They're always in the playoff hunt. They have been since after his first season. Famously, they were within an overtime period of winning a national championship in his second year in Athens. And that's as close as they've gotten. Uh, granted, it's very hard to win a national championship, so stands to reason that's as close as a lot of teams would ever get, and a lot of them won't even get that close. Let me back up to last year. I thought James Coley, for those of you unaware, the coordinator, the offensive coordinator at Georgia last year, I thought he took what I consider a lot of undue criticism. And that's because Georgia's offense, according to most people's perspective, underachieved last year. I don't argue with you on that point. Where I did take a little bit of exception was everyone trying to, you know, toss it on the shoulders of James Coley, just like they did Mike Bobo a generation ago. Now, one of your brethren in the SEC East are fairly excited about hiring Mike Bobo. You wanted to hire Mike Bobo again, by the way. A lot of you did this time 
well, not this time last year, this last offseason. So James Coley last year, was he the problem there? Was there a big problem there? I don't think it was a huge problem, but listen, they underachieved, and I don't think that even the head coach at Georgia would argue that. Obviously, he's not arguing because he made changes. And so now Georgia fans, got vast majority of you got what you wanted, and you got a new offensive coordinator in, in Todd Munkin. Who is he? We got plenty of time to talk about that. You also join him at the hip with a transfer quarterback named Jamie Newman out of Wake Forest. I know a lot of you have shared and read that pro football focus piece, and there were a lot of glowing reviews about Jamie Newman when he came to Athens by way of Wake Forest. And I'm with you on that. I'm excited to see him, too. I think probably he's a guy that, when put in the right system at the right program and surrounded with capable talent, probably a guy that could really pop this year. So you got what you wanted in that sense, that everyone says right now, and keep in mind, right now means before the first helmet's been put on for spring practice, going to be more explosive elements to the offense, going to throw the ball more, going to be more aggressive. We're going to Where have we heard this before? More properly utilize our weapons. In other words, we're going to properly leverage our recruiting. And so when we're sitting here on National Signing Day, and in the past we've seen George Pickens and Don Blaylock come in, and now this last signing day we see Arian Smith come in, we see Jermaine Burton, they snatch him away from LSU at the last minute. Yeah, you got all those guys on campus, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't use them. So now the word is we're going to utilize that and leverage that talent properly in Athens. That's great. There are two camps forming right now, as far as I can see it, with Georgia. And when I say camps, I mean different schools of thought around Kirby Smart. I know this because I have found myself at times in both camps. Not quite sure where I'm falling. I'm going to take a little bit of a stance here, though. I'm going to be in Camp B. But first, let me tell you where Camp A is. Camp A thinks that Kirby Smart is who he is. Therefore, it doesn't really matter who he hires because ultimately those offensive game plans are decided by the head man and they're endorsed by the head man. It's not like, and this is where I felt like James Coley was probably a little bit unjustly criticized last year. It's not like James Coley ever showed up to Sanford Stadium on a Saturday, whistled right on past Kirby Smart, went up to the booth and just called his game plan. Everything about what James Coley did last year was signed off on and endorsed by the head coach. Well, be that as it may, James Coley's out, Todd Munkin's in. A lot of people would look at you and say, doesn't matter who's up there. Doesn't matter if the most revolutionary offensive mind in the history of the game's up there. Kirby Smart is going to limit them. He's going to jerk the reins on them because he's got a championship caliber defense and he, he doesn't want to see his program go down the path of some of these other programs that have sold out offensively and they put all their eggs in that basket and then when it comes time to get a stop in a 48-41 game, they can't do it. That's what one camp would lead you to believe, and that doesn't matter who the personnel or the staff is and looks like, it's ultimately Kirby Smart's team and the offense is always going to look the same. Um, I understand that thinking, and initially I may have bought into that thinking. Here's why I'm leaning just a little bit to Camp B. Camp B is the offense is going to evolve this year because Kirby Smart's going to evolve this year. Now, you may think to yourself, a coach is who he is, but that's garbage. That's not always true. I think a lot of folks don't realize how young Kirby Smart is. A lot of folks, for that matter, don't realize how young a lot of these guys are. Gus Malzahn at Auburn, uh, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. The entire landscape of this sport has changed. You used to have to work your way up several rungs of a ladder to ever sniff a job like Georgia. Now, you just get Georgia in your lap as your first head coaching job. And I'm not telling you Smart didn't earn it, quite the opposite. 
But fact of the matter is, you and I both know, if the year is 1980 instead of 2020, or 2016 as it were, that man is not putting on his training wheels, or rather taking them off at the University of Georgia, but things have changed. Ryan Day is enjoying this now. Lincoln Riley, like I said. Gus Malzahn, a brief stay at Arkansas State. He's now enjoying this at Auburn. And Kirby Smart's enjoying it at Georgia. Well, here's why I mention all these guys. Coaches and the process in which coaches grow, evolve, learn, in some cases, very hard lessons, it hasn't changed. I don't care if salaries have changed. I don't care if the timetable on how quickly you can rise to one of these jobs has been expedited. You still got to learn lessons. You still got to learn who you are as a head coach. You still have to evolve and grow. Kirby Smith feels like he's been there forever. And sometimes you just feel like a coach is who he is. No. Here's how it used to work. The greats in this sport, the Nick Sabans, um, you know, Urban Meyer. Take Saban and Meyer, for example. They learned hard lessons. They had to develop their identity as a head coach. The difference is they did it at places like Bowling Green or Utah or Toledo in front of about 4,500 people on a Saturday. I mean, in the crowd were parents of players, alumni, and degenerate gamblers. I mean, those basically were the people who were watching Toledo and Bowling Green football games when Saban and Meyer were at those stops respectively. So they learned tough lessons too, guys. They evolved their style too. It's just you didn't notice it because they weren't under any microscope. They weren't under any white hot spotlight in front of 100K and a multi-million person viewing audience at home. There are no easy ways to learn those lessons for Kirby Smart. There is no easy way to grow out of the spotlight. But yeah, that doesn't change the fact that they still got to go through it, just like all the other guys went through it, even before they enjoyed their success. And what I'm saying to you is, how can you know for sure that guy just is who he's always going to be as a head coach? He's not blind. He's not stupid. If you sat there and you watched the sport change, and you watched Alabama do what they've done, and Clemson do what they've done, and LSU do what they've done, he faced them. He faced LSU last year with a really good defense on the field, and Georgia didn't play half bad, and they were still, in the end, shredded. They were, they were hurt by injury, but they were shredded. You don't think Kirby Smart, I don't care what he said at a press conference or to any reporters, you don't think he got back home and did a healthy inventory of his program and realized what the rest of us realize, and that is Georgia is ill-equipped right now. Even if they're healthy, they're ill-equipped to go through a stretch in Atlanta, semifinal national championship game, and deal with several teams like this. Of course, he realizes it. He's not blind. So here's what I'm asking. Could it be, I don't think what I'm about to suggest is radical, could it be that now, five years in, six years in, seven years in, we're entering a stretch wherein Kirby Smart might evolve... And in turn, you see Georgia offensively evolve. That's where I'm falling right now. And that's actually what I expect to see from Georgia this year. Now, first things first, you got to open spring and you got to get some positions figured out. And we got to see what Jamie Newman's all about at quarterback. Got to actually see what the offense will consist of. And what is a Georgia offense under Todd Munkin? I don't know. But here's what I do know. The margin for error on this team has been far smaller than it should be, given the talent advantage that they have nine times out of 10 when they take the field. I wrote down Notre Dame, Florida, Texas A&M, and Auburn. Those were all one possession wins for Georgia last year. They lost against South Carolina. Half a dozen games on this schedule were one possession games, either losing or winning last year. And I'm here to tell you they had significant, moderate to significant talent advantages in every one of these games. How do you maximize that talent? Well, 
you do just that. You maximize it by using it more. I don't think Georgia, and I think even Kirby Smart, in his heart of hearts, understands this, utilized that talent properly enough last year. The thing about it is, you got to have the right weapons. I think, and most of you think, Georgia has the right weapons at quarterback, most specifically, and then everywhere else around him to do that, to be an offense that overnight flips a switch and becomes a juggernaut. They already have it defensively. Here's what I think the one caveat in Kirby Smart's mind is. I don't think he suggests and I don't think he intends to flip some radical switch and go from what Georgia was last year to all of a sudden being what Alabama is or turning into Oklahoma. And the reason is he's watched Alabama and even though Alabama hasn't fallen off, they're still in the top tier, he looks and he sees them losing an Iron Bowl 48 to 45. And he sees them repeatedly in the second half against LSU trading punches but not able to get a stop, not even coming close to be able to get a stop. I don't think he ever wants to be there. So I think to a certain extent he understands we got to evolve offensively. He's never sacrificing championship caliber defensive play. He's not throwing that out the window. And so whatever a happy medium is, maybe 60-40 the other way, 70-30 the other way, I think there's an effort to do that. To be honest with you, I don't know if they understand where the pin and the map is that they want to get, but I do think there'll be concerted effort underway this year, this spring, this summer, and ultimately this fall to get there for Kirby Smart and Georgia. Let's move on. Let's head up the road. Just a, just, a, just a couple of miles, I would say. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Probably called a month ago. Timing's not important. The question they asked is important. The question they asked me was, is Ohio State capable or is Ohio State currently doing to the Big Ten what Clemson has done to the ACC? In some ways, what Oklahoma has done to the Big 12? I answered, yes. I kind of gave both answers. Uh, it's my belief that there is too much invested in places like Michigan, uh, like Wisconsin, like Penn State, for any team to ever just totally detach themselves from the rest of the field in the Big Ten. Having said that, there is a clear and sizable gap between the Ohio State Buckeyes right now and whoever you want to call second best up there. Now, I don't think anyone, including our folks at Michigan or Penn State, are arguing that. They're certainly not arguing it in Columbus. They are uh, waving their fist in agreement. So do I think it's possible that they ever turn the Big Ten into what Clemson has turned the ACC into? No. But I do think there's a very big gap here. They're on a totally different level. The why, to me, is pretty easy. I'm going to give you the when it happened in a second because I had a very interesting conversation with a couple of my Michigan guys, one of whom works for this network, the other just a dude I know from around the block. I think that right now, every category, it's like a video game when you get to design a player and you have so many points. Well, at Ohio State, they have like unlimited points to design a program and everything's a 10. Fundraising is a 10. Infrastructure and resources, they're all 10s. Strength and conditioning is an 11, if that's possible. Sports medicine is a 10. Their coaching staff is a 10. Their recruiting is a 10. And their commitment level is a 10. Don't mistake this. There's a big difference in places that are fully committed and places that think they're fully committed. Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, uh, these places will show you what it looks like to truly be a freight train where every car is just moving in the same direction. And a lot of places think they're like that. Most places aren't. Even the places that have those big brand name helmets and they got those trophy cases with a lot of those trophies collecting dust and they think they're serious, but they're not quite as serious. 
They're like a, a seven in this category, maybe an eight and a half here, but a six and a half here. And when you're trying to compete with 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 across the board, makes it really hard. And that's how a gap forms. They care more. That's the short answer. At Ohio State, they just care more than everyone else. The reason I know it is because they prove it. They prove it in every facet of the program. There's nothing left to chance. There's no corner cut. When did it happen? This is where I'm talking to one of my Michigan buddies about a month ago. And I, I just kind of listened to him. See, I, I mean, when Jim Harbaugh got to Michigan, I was of the opinion that it was a dawning of a new era at the University of Michigan. And I thought, ultimately, that he could do in short time at Michigan to Urban Meyer, who was then at Ohio State, what Nick Saban did. Nick Saban came into the SEC at Alabama. 07 was a throwaway year. 08, he got Bama to Atlanta. They faced Florida. It was a four-quarter classic back and forth. Tebow and Florida end up winning. But the next year, they dethroned Florida. Florida as a program is never the same. Meyer ends up leaving a short time thereafter. And I thought that Jim Harbaugh could end up doing that at Michigan. Revisionist history says, oh, he was never even close. Now, you and I both know that's not true. Here's when it happened. It's very rare that you could just, just point your finger to a football game as being a turning point. A lot of times in literature, they pretend it happens like this. Most of the time, it's a gradual build or a gradual decline. But if we go back to that 2016 Ohio State-Michigan game, 30-27 in overtime, very controversial ending. I certainly don't have to remind Michigan folks how it happened. I don't think I need to remind Buckeye fans either how it happened. Ohio State essentially is a program, not that they were cruising at low altitude to begin with, but it's like they hit a springboard that day. And their trajectory has been unmistakable. Do you remember what Jim Harbaugh and Michigan were like before that day? Before that day, I lived in Columbus, Georgia at the time, not Columbus, Ohio, and Jim Harbaugh had come down to Prattville, Alabama. This was when the satellite camp thing was all the rage and it was going to you know, erode away the integrity of the sport. He came down there and he stirred everyone up down there and he, he ruffled a lot of feathers and he was really active on Twitter and he was, he was running his mouth a lot. I didn't have a problem with it because I knew he was marketing his program and ultimately I thought he was going to be able to back it up. So for two years he did that. And they go into Columbus and they play toe-to-toe with Ohio State. And I will never forget this. I picked Michigan to win the game. And I was doing a show in Columbus, Georgia at the time, a TV show with a buddy of mine. And he was steadfast. Ohio State has got this. And Harbaugh, it's gonna, he's going to let you down. Michigan's going to let you down. And I was steadfast in the other direction. And so I was at the Iron Bowl, but yet I was not down on the field. I was up in the press box because the games overlapped. And so as the Iron Bowl's going on in front of me, I'm locked on a computer screen here watching the ending of Ohio State-Michigan. And I'll never forget watching that ending, the way it happened. Is he short? Did he convert? Yes, he did. Touchdown Ohio State, they win the game. You can never know at the time the most seminal moments. You know that was a big outcome. You know you're going to be talking about that game for 50 years, but we never could know at the time. In retrospect, that's as close as Jim Harbaugh and Michigan are going to get not just to beating Ohio State since then, but also possibly being relevant as a national power. And I want you to play a game with me. We're not going to do it long, just 30 seconds. What in the world is different about the state of that rivalry, the state of the Big Ten, and thus the state of college football, if Michigan wins that game? To me, and this goes back to what my Michigan buddy and I were talking about, it's almost like a a breaking down of a Berlin Wall. Not only do you end a streak in a rivalry, but also everything that you have talked, if you're Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, it's validated on that day. Instead, Ohio State wins another one curse continues, whatever you want to call it. 
And it's almost like as Ohio State hit that springboard, Michigan was neutered as a program. I had Sam Webb on the other day, not on this show, on another um, uh, series of actual hits that we do here at 24-7 Sports. Sam Webb works for the MichiganInsider.com. It's our Michigan 24-7 site. And I was talking to him about spring football at Michigan. And yeah, we delved into this position and that position and what's the overall mood, but really what it comes down to, and he was brutally honest about it and he's dead on the money, is nothing aside from Ohio State matters right now, which brings me to this point. It's not that everyone's not focused on Ohio State and the Big Ten. Commitment level is what it takes. Commitment, talent is what it takes. You got to have a top-notch coaching staff, but commitment level is what it's got to take. I no longer think they have the right guy at Michigan. I no longer think they have the right formula at Michigan. So I was wrong about that because I thought they did have it. But what Sam Webb told me and what I've observed to be true as well is it doesn't matter if the offensive line looks like it's coming together. It doesn't, look, doesn't really matter if they got a couple of hot new wide receiver prospects as true freshmen that look to contribute. It doesn't matter if they start 8-0. None of this stuff matters. All Michigan folks care about, all Penn State folks care about, all anyone cares about in the Big Ten is that circle date with that team from Columbus. And if you beat them, then we can talk. And if you don't, what in the world does it matter? So in that sense, yes, the Big Ten has become what the ACC is to Clemson. I just happen to think there may be a few more qualified players in the Big Ten, players in terms of programs, that are capable of making a push. But here's the final point that makes Ohio State not only a superpower right now in college football and in the Big Ten, but here to stay. You see... um, the picture we have there on the lower third at the bottom of the screen, that's Ryan Day. The day that Urban Meyer announced his retirement, I remember about a 48-hour period where a lot of you thought it was going to be open season. You were probably going to raid their roster or their recruiting class, and certainly the dynasty there was over. And yet, I remember I didn't even have to talk to anyone. I remember observing the process in which he ended up being the head coach there, and there wasn't this huge national coaching search They didn't take three or four weeks and go to this end of the world and that end of the world. They, at least as far as I could tell, hired the guy they wanted to hire. Anytime that a program, the magnitude of Ohio State, hires the guy they want to hire and they don't get turned down five times before they hire someone, I'd be very hesitant thinking it's going to be open season on anything. Ryan Day is a superstar. I don't care if he's been here 15 minutes. He's a superstar. And that is the most important aspect to why they're not going anywhere. You may catch them. It's going to take a heck of an effort. You may catch them, but they're not going anywhere. I don't hate on this because I enjoy the commitment level. And the thing about it is a lot of other programs out there are technically capable of what Ohio State's done, what Bama's done, what LSU's done, what Clemson's done. A lot of programs out there are capable of it. They don't want it bad enough. Why in the world would I get mad at Ohio State because they are pinging tens in all aspects of their program? How about I get mad at the underachievers for not matching them? That's what I'm more likely to get mad at. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Uh, There's a program that we need to talk about now. 
It's not necessarily peeing in at tens. Uh, however, I will grant you this. There was a nice surge at the end of the year last year that has caused a lot of optimism. We got to go to Knoxville. We're talking Tennessee football. We do mood trackers. I keep a file, a running file in my Google Drive here of all the major programs that we talk about the most. And there's a running mood tracker. And at any given point in the year, I can go back and I can see what I thought the collective mood was, the temperature, if you will, of the fan base. Sometimes it's really fun. Other times it's kind of sad. But most times it shows you the volatility and the fickle nature of what perception versus reality is. Think about Tennessee's 2019 season. You remember how it started, of course, but I want to talk about how it ended, too. Uh, this was a program that looked like not only was it going to go completely off the rails last year, it looked like there possibly was going to be an overthrow of a coaching staff in like week three or week four. If you don't remember, this is a team, the Tennessee Volunteers, that lost to Georgia State at home in week one. They lost to Brigham Young in week two. That was a week famously where BYU would not ship me a t-shirt. thought they had some really good designs, and they wouldn't ship me a t-shirt because I wasn't going to the game. So that's a grudge that I still hold. They beat UT Chad in week three, so they won the in-state rivalry, and then week four they get crushed by Florida on the scoreboard. I didn't think the game and score necessarily lined up. Nevertheless, they went into their first bye week. They were one and three. Rumors abound in Knoxville that there could be a situation wherein Jeremy Pruitt is let go because he's lost the locker room, lost the program. Of all people, Phil Fulmer could bury Alvarez his way down the stairs and onto the sideline and serve as an interim head coach. I didn't necessarily know if that was going to happen. I didn't know which rumors to believe because I had, to be honest with you guys, I had some people that I've come to trust at Tennessee when I would ask them, you know, with a little smiley face or, or laughing emoji, they'd text me back and say, I wouldn't be so quick to laugh. I, I'm not so sure there's not some validity here. They got to a point coming out of that bye week where they had to play Alabama and Georgia, but they got to a point where you start in week six. And if I could take the front of their schedule and I could put it behind the end of their schedule last year. Once they got rolling, it felt like they were playing 9-3 and three level football. They finished the year 6-0, and oh, I think 5-0, and 6-0 oh, oh with the bowl game, something like that. But, you know, the way they were playing at the end of the year obviously did not warrant being a product and a team that would have lost to Georgia State or BYU. So they probably played 9-3 and three level ball at the end after the bowl game. Because of the ending to last year, you enter spring, I would say the overall mood tracker right now that we're going to have on Tennessee is one of extreme, extreme, two extremes, cautious optimism. Because every statement that I've heard come out of a Tennessee fan or a Tennessee insider's mouth, there's this sprinkling of optimism. They give you something to run with. And then there's a, but... You know, J.J. Peterson, he's talented, but you got to do it this year. Hadn't shown us anything so far. I mean, Jared Garantano, Brian Maurer, neither of whom do I view, uh, nor do you apparently view to be the answer. But then you got Harrison Bailey. And might Harrison Bailey, even as a true freshman, be able to wow enough and be able to perceptionally pull even with or maybe slightly ahead of those guys enough to where, all right, if I'm Jeremy Pruitt, I'm willing to pull the trigger there. Hopeful, though. That's what everyone is. They're hopeful in these coaching changes and locking down a top 10 recruiting class. I'm going to talk about that in a second. A lot of people are hopeful that a lot of things they're seeing are not fooling their eyes. 
that end to the season last year. Hopefully it's a surge. I think momentum is one of the most overused terms season to season in college football. But hey, if it does exist, hopefully there's a carryover momentum last year to this year. Survived Indiana in the bowl game. Locked down a top 10 recruiting class. Again, I'm going to circle back to that in a second and what it could mean. But you're hopeful in a lot of areas. I don't necessarily think there's a reason not to be. There was a lot of coaching turnover on this staff in the offseason. Now, here's where I hit the pause button a little bit. I, um, I saw it just like you did. There are two schools of thought on the Tennessee coaching turnover, just like there are two schools of thought without Georgia's offense is going to play out this year. A lot of folks see Jeremy Pruitt sort of burning the underbrush here and clearing things out so that you can have necessary growth in the program. And maybe he had guys on his staff to get off the ground that collectively as a staff weren't capable of cruising past a certain altitude. And so now you got to drop some sandbags and then you got to add and then hopefully you can fly a little bit higher But then the skeptic comes in and says, okay, well, there's something to be said for continuity. Guys like Nick Saban notwithstanding, what he's done is the exception to the rule. Normally, you want some continuity like maybe Dabo and Clemson have. And what if behind closed doors, Jeremy Pruitt just can't keep a staff together because a lot of guys haven't bought into his vision? I don't think that's the case. I think Jeremy Pruitt believes he upgraded his coaching staff here. That remains to be seen. But here's why the ending to 2019 was so important. I didn't necessarily care because the teams they were beating, they should have beaten. So I didn't necessarily care about the results in and of themselves. What I was looking for for Tennessee the whole season last year and what I think they ultimately got because of the way they finished on the recruiting trail is they just needed to be able to package a vision. If you're watching this show when I was doing it independently last year, that's all I talked about. Don't care about the win-loss record for Tennessee. Granted, I don't want you to go 3-9. and and it looked for a second like that was possible, if not probable. They end up seven and five regular season. I didn't care about six and six, seven and five, eight and four. What I cared about is can Jeremy Pruitt package a vision? What I mean by that is you got to understand the difference. If you're in your mid 30s or older, 40s, 50s, I'm in my mid 30s. You guys may be around there. You may be older than that. For those of you who are older than your mid-30s, you've seen Tennessee play for SEC championships. You've seen them be a perennial top 10 team. You have seen Tennessee football win a national championship. If you're a junior in high school, the last time Tennessee beat Alabama, you were barely able to walk. So the Tennessee you remember, those kids don't remember. And those kids are the ones that you're recruiting. So what Tennessee needed to be able to do is package a vision. They can't settle for second best. If you're going to beat Georgia, you got to beat Georgia with kids they wanted, kids that could start at Georgia. That's normally the way that's got to happen unless you pull some kind of freak plus four turnover kind of day like South Carolina did this past year. To compare to Georgia as a program, you got to have comparable athletes, and that's hard. I would say it's easier said than done. It's not even easy to say. It's hard. It's especially hard when you can't go out into those living rooms and reasonably sell a kid on the idea that it's possible to play for an SEC championship here. Well, no, it's not. I've never seen you do it. Like, How in the world are you trying to sell me on that? Well, then all of a sudden you get a little juice at the end of the year. And then, as opposed to walking in after four and eight and my job's on the line, I walk in and we finished, at least I could convince you that we finished as one of the hottest teams in the country, and here's what I sell you on now. We played Alabama pretty hard last year. A year before, we played Georgia pretty hard. We can't beat them right now, but we can't beat them because we don't have the players. You are one of those players. So what I'm telling you is, forget about the past for a second. 
look at the arrow, this orange arrow pointing up, and then consider what you could add to it. I need players like you. I am accumulating players like you. We're going to win with or without you, but I need you on board. If you end last season the way you did, and then you go out on the trail and you pitch that, here's what happens. What happens is I'm sitting on the stage behind this camera you're looking at. It's National Signing Day, and we're doing our National Signing Day show, and Barton Simmons and I are up here, and Steve Wolfong's over here at the desk that I'm sitting at, and all of a sudden, Colin and Aaron from the control room come in our ear and say, hey, we got breaking news here, and then and Trey Scott comes in here and says, hey, uh, during a commercial break, Tennessee, they just landed this guy and that guy, and they've cracked the top 10. And we don't even have a graphic ready for it because no one anticipated it. We didn't even have a, a, one of the pre-made graphics ready for Tennessee finishing top 10, but yet they did. Make no mistake, the finish to last season was enough probably in the minds of enough kids to push them into that top 10 category. Now, there's still a sizable gap between the class Tennessee brought in and the class Georgia brought in, Alabama brought in, but at least it's closing. At least for one year, it was closing. So now we look towards 2020. Extremely cautious optimism. That's the pre-spring mood tracker for Tennessee. Here's one other important thing. Uh, they played a nightmarish schedule last year. And it's not easy this year. They go to Oklahoma. They got to play Florida. They got to play Alabama. They got to play at Georgia. Uh, the important thing to note, at least from what we can tell right now, is it's very unlikely they will ever have back-to-back -back weeks in 2020 where they play top 20 teams. So I always respected Tennessee fans' patience. I used to harp on this pretty heavily on the previous version of this program. I always respected how even after they were sort of like in battered animal syndrome, after the Dooley experiment, the Kiffin experiment, and Butch Jones comes in and he asks for time so we can do a complete overhaul here, and you guys gave him time. And whereas you enter territory where it looked briefly like there was a spark and that walk-off win against Georgia. We were right there standing in the end zone for that one. Ultimately, it doesn't work out, and then it's time to burn it all down, and it's time to start over again, and you get zero, I mean zero, return on your emotional investment. The last thing in the world you want to do is sit there on your computer or sit there on your phone or sit there in a press conference room and listen to a guy take the stage and say, we're going to win here, but I'm going to need patience, and we're going to need time. That's what worried me the most about Pruitt last year. I didn't necessarily know if Tennessee fans were in any kind of mental space to give another coaching staff time, especially when they start off losing to Georgia State and BYU. Well, at least for now, you have. So selfishly, I really hope it pays off because I'll be honest with you. I was in the office the other day and I was talking to one of our guys here. I was looking at web traffic for LSU and LSU had a huge year last year and understandably their web traffic just exploded. The numbers look like typos. That's how crazy it is. And I was thinking just from our perspective, like what team could be that next team? Which team is a massive fan base that is just dying to break through? Now LSU, relatively speaking, was not in any kind of wilderness like Tennessee has been, but if Tennessee popped off a season all of a sudden where they were back in contention for the SEC East, it would be pretty incredible. I think for everyone, from our IT department, our web traffic, to just you guys, not even worried about any of that stuff, just watching the resurgence in Tennessee in Knoxville. That would be fun to watch. Selfishly, I hope it happens because I would love to see, again, selfishly, I know you guys in Athens can tune out right now, I'd love to see as cannibalistic an environment exists in the SEC East as exists 
in the SEC West right now. Talking to Colin before the show, the schedule is a lot more evenly divided this year. You don't have all the big games pushed towards the end. And so a couple of more big time players in the East will go a long way towards further solidifying the SEC picture and uh, essentially being a a minor professional league. Uh, Before we go, I wanted to remind you, for those of you who weren't tuned in before, we have the podcast ready to go. So by tomorrow, I would assume, if not already, it should be in your feeds. Uh, Search The Late Kick with Josh Pape, really original, same title as the YouTube show. A ton of you shared our show the other night. A lot of you, there was some mild concern as to whether you would come over and find us. No problem. And so... The 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, I know right now there have only been two live shows here. Guys, we're building a lot of stuff here, and it's really fun to come to work every day because there are a lot of people here that are really, really good at what they do, and they are professionals and they're the best in the business. Uh, That's why they're here. And so we got a lot of really capable folks working on a lot of really good stuff. Like I told you the other night, this is the first live show that is airing that we've put together here. This won't be the only live show eventually that's airing here. So we're aiming to produce and provide a little something for everyone. Also, a lot of you asked the other night after the show, and I don't know why I didn't talk about this, about the tornadoes that hit Nashville. Now, 24-7 Sports, our office, where we sit physically right now, is about 20 minutes south of downtown. I live downtown, though, and my building got hit by that tornado the other night. So I've lived out of a hotel all week and I've been displaced, which pales in comparison to what a lot of other folks went through up here. So I wanted to tell you, thank you, first off, for all of your kind words. B, continue to provide prayer and support for the people up here because they really need it. But C, I just wanted to tell you a couple of accounts from ground level where I live in Germantown. A lot of volunteer teams that came in from out of state and from out of region, I was told yesterday had to be turned around because they didn't have anything here for them because the community here banded together so quickly and got cleanup done so quickly, free of charge, just volunteer that a lot of volunteers showed up, National Guard, Red Cross, and they came in and they kind of looked around and said, what do we do? Now, there is a ton, and I mean a ton, of devastation and cleanup still to be done just east of us here across the Cumberland River. But A lot of you cared and a lot of you reached out, so I really appreciate that. Uh, We got our power back on about two hours ago, so I actually get to go home to my apartment tonight. A lot of people in my neighborhood are not nearly as fortunate, and certainly a lot of people to the east are not nearly as fortunate, but a lot of cleanup underway here, a lot still to go, but a lot of you have reached out, and we really do appreciate that. So again, the programming schedule, if uh, you didn't catch it first, Sunday and Thursday nights, 7 o'clock Central Time, 8 Eastern Time, we'll do this through the entire spring, and then we'll recalibrate and we'll readjust our schedule for the off season. Uh, but I appreciate you sharing the show, all the comments. As you can see, I read every single one of them. You guys have been really active here and we're just getting started on what's going to be a lot of really, really good content that we're going to bring you. So for myself, for Colin, for Aaron at home, I'm Josh Pape. This has been The Late Kick. Have a great week. We'll see you back here same time Thursday night. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.